Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. and freedom will be defended. Welcome back to part two of my chat with G, a retired constable from the Metropolitan Police Service. In this episode, G and I relive the moment he and his colleagues were awarded a BAFTA for the short movie which portrayed G's life in policing. The film, The Black Cop, a villain, a victim, a hero, is an incredibly powerful story which recalls the challenges G faced and the bravery he showed when he was so vulnerable. All this and more next on Protect and Serve. Let's talk about, I, I want to cover off on a really important area where mm. you're almost free of the pressures that you're under in terms of your um, sexual orientation, your homosexuality that you'd been fighting mm. with for many years when you're working in the diversity unit, sitting across the way from your colleague, as I recall it, having watched and, and, and read some material, that, you know, the comment was made that you must have all these women flocking around you because you're this big, handsome man. And, and obviously you came out and said oh. that, that you were gay and it was this moment of relief. Can you talk us through that quite important moment in your life? Yeah. I mean, there, there was a step before that because I was on another mm. team. And I remember we had a gay inspector and I was in the photocopying room and I was bending down, putting paper in the photocopying machine and he came in and he grabbed me from behind and started to dry hump me. 
and he said, uh, I like a black ass. And I remember standing up and I was so annoyed. And I reported it. And I remember going to see, it was a Friday afternoon, I went to see the chief inspector who was going to be the investigator for this incident. And I remember walking into his office and the first thing he said to me was, at the end of the day, G, you're a PC, he's a chief inspector, he's an inspector, do you really think this is going to go anywhere? And I remember walking out of his office, just got up, I just walked out, went home, walked around in circles around my living room, got to Sunday night and decided that's it, I can't do this anymore. And I wrote a suicide note, put it on the coffee table, and went to the local train station with the intention of jumping in front of a train. Oh gee, wow. Um, something stopped me and basically I had a breakdown and I think everything in my life just came crashing down at the same time and that during that breakdown I was off work for about three months uh, had a very good counsellor who helped me come back and one of the things that came out of that breakdown was I suddenly realised I didn't know who I was yeah I was trying to be what I thought people wanted me to be. And the only person who hadn't told me who I was, was me. So that began that journey of, I need to figure out who I am. Um, I remember the counselor telling me that I should leave the job. Uh, he said, I don't think the job would be right for you. And I thought, no, I want to stay. I, I enjoy the job. It's not the job that's the problem. It's some of the people within it. The actual job itself is I am proud to have worn that uniform. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's absolutely no shame or disgust. I just, yeah, the job was powerful, amazing. So I came back and I became a diversity trainer. Um, and I remember walking into classrooms. Again, this was around the Stephen Lawrence report time. And you'd walk into classrooms and there'd be 16, 20 cops looking at you with anger and hatred. And I loved it. I just, something about that environment just really rocked my boat. Um, and I started doing the work. But then it was also, I think, doing that work, because you're talking about these issues and you're talking about, I'm sort of like, I can't do this if I'm not honest with myself. Uh, and this thing had been going through my head for a while. I think sort of like there wasn't no plan. There wasn't no grand master plan that I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. I just started to have this conversation with myself. And that conversation took about almost two years. And then one morning, again, not planned, right? I walked into the office and um, one of my uh, sergeants was in the office and she was talking about she had had, oh, she had, a problem with her boyfriend over the weekend and she was complaining about men and all this sort of stuff and I'm sitting there and then she looks at me she goes I suppose she goes, I suppose you don't have a problem with all the women you got how do you manage all the women you've got on the go and I remember sitting there I was typing and I looked up and I said actually I'm gay and then I stood up and I just walked out the office right and there was part of me I'm sitting there thinking what did I just do yeah. <laughs> what the hell have I done? <laughs> and I remember walking along the corridor 
And I got to the top of the stairs and there was a colleague coming up the stairs. And I said, he said, hey, G, how are you doing? I said, I'm fine. I said, I've just come out the closet. I'm gay. And he goes, oh, well done, mate. And I'm like, ooh. And it was like, suddenly, I just felt like telling everybody. You know, you're going to McDonald's and it's like, um, I want a milkshake, French fries. And I'm gay, by the way. <laughs> you know, it just, just saying it, just being able to say it was just like, wow. It didn't matter what people said to me. I didn't need anyone's validation or permission or support. I'm like, this is me. I'm owning this. I'm me. And then there's, there's this moment then, um, shortly thereafter, where you gave, was it a, an opening speech or a conversation at an LGTB festival talk us through that moment it was um yeah the well i remember going to the canteen there was a, a friend of mine i met in the canteen i was talking to her that this is about two weeks after i'd come out and i just happened to mention to her that i've come out and we were talking about it and she goes oh see she's one of the organizers for pride london and she said um would you would you want to do a, do you want to do a speech at pride and i was like Okay, <laughs> it was just one of those things. I'm like, I've come this far, might as well just go. Hey, what the <laughs> hell? <laughs> and it just really gave me a buzz. And I, and I went back to the office and I was talking about it in the office. And then somebody said, are you going to do it in uniform? And I thought, oh, I hadn't thought of that. And I went to my boss and I said, Look, I've been asked to do this speech at Pride. Can I do it in uniform? And I remember the look on his face was like, and he said, um, there's a form we got called the 728. It's basically, you have to write your report. It goes, put it on the 728. And then he looked at me as if to say, right, I've got rid of that. And then I came back in about 30 minutes later with this 728. And he was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is happening. It. Yeah, love it. <laughs> um, and it got passed up the food chain. And I remember it ended up on the deputy commissioner's desk. And I was summoned to Scotland Yard. So, you know, you sort of look at it back then. You sort of think, now nobody would think twice. Uh, and I was summoned to Scotland Yard and I, to meet the deputy commissioner. Um, so Ian Blair at the time. And I remember walking into his office and he said, um, right, this piece of paper has now become a file. It was about that thick. Right. And he said, I've got this request for you to do the speech at the Gay Pride Rally. Um, why should I allow you to do the speech? And I said, with all due respect, sir, I think you've got the wrong end of the stick. And he's like, what do you mean? I said, I'm doing the speech. What I'm asking for is permission to do it in uniform. And I said, I can either, you can either say yes and I stand there as a proud symbol of how far diversity has come within the police service. Or you could say no, and I stand there and say, I wanted to do a uniform, but I wasn't allowed. But the choice is entirely yours, sir. And he sort of looked at me and he goes, I hope I haven't got too many other people like you in the job. <laughs> and in my head, I'm sort of like, I hope you have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I turned up on the day, and it was... Um, I mean, I was used to speaking to crowds, so that wasn't a problem. My uncle in Nigeria is a magician, so I used to be his warm-up man on the stage. 
for stadiums. So walking out to a crowd of 10, 15, 20,000 was... That's a lot of a people, walking. G. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was beautiful. Yeah, that's it was a beautiful. Lie, I, that crowd. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I remember sort of standing there and I, I wrote a poem for the day, which I read, I read the poem and then came off. And as soon as I came off, I suddenly had Sky News and BBC and everything. All these people sort of taking pictures and photographing me and... What I didn't know at the time is I was the first black officer to come out as gay in the Met. Um, there'd been another officer of color, but I think he was um, mixed race. Uh, but I was the first, like, totally black. And it was like, oh, my life just suddenly from there, I was invited to here, there and everywhere. I met with so many people. But this time it was like I was, I was comfortable being in those spaces. I wasn't doing it because I wanted the attention. I was doing it because, actually, yeah, this feels right. I feel like I've earned this. As opposed to looking at it for validation. It was like, I've earned this. Mm. Um, and I found the more comfortable I became with myself, the less confrontational I became. And that was a really powerful thing. As a result of your actions mm. and your communication style and being upfront with people as to kind of who you were, mm. did you have colleagues reaching out to you for kind of advice and support because they were fighting the same challenges? Yeah, and not only those challenges, all sorts of challenges. All sorts of challenges. I think the thing was that people just felt I was... Because I was being authentic and real, people thought they could talk to me. I remember one friend came around and he was going through uh, a problem with his missus. And he came around to my house and he was sitting there pouring out his heart about what had been happening. Okay? And I said to him, I said, this is really funny. He said, what? I said, here's a straight guy coming to a gay guy for marriage advice. And he just turned and he looked at me and goes, no. I'm speaking to my best mate. I'm not speaking to a gay guy. I'm not speaking to a straight guy. I'm just speaking to my best mate who can give me good advice. And I was like, oh, yeah. Wouldn't it that be refreshing was... if it would be, be so refreshing if that was everybody's view? That's, yeah. that's exactly how people should be viewed upon. But one, one, one moment I did like, I was doing a diversity course and I showed the video of me doing the, the speech. And there was a young black cop in the room. And he turned around, he stood up. He goes, that, that was the reason why I joined the job. He said, I was 16. I was in the crowd on that day. I saw you on that day. He said, I didn't know it was you. He said, but I was there. He said, that was the moment I decided I was going to join the police. He goes, I'm here because of that. And I was like, you know, this is you about 10. Yeah, how does that make you feel? Proud. Proud. Yeah, I'm going to own it. I'm proud. Yeah. Um, and I've met, I mean, <laughs> another example. They did, not long after coming out, the Evening Standard did a four-page spread on me. And that was fun because I remember sort of like when it came out, the day it was printed, I remember sitting on the tube watching people reading it. And my picture was like on the front page of this thing. 
And I was like, oh, God. And it just yeah. felt really, it was, it was like a buzz, right? And then I think it was two days later, I'm at work and I get a phone call saying, uh, from the main call center saying, oh, we've got a, um, an officer from Jamaica that wants to speak to you. I'm um, so, like, okay. So I rang her up and she was in London and she sort of said, can I come and see you? And I said, yeah, sure. So she came down to Hendon. I was working at Hendon at the time. She sat down and she told me, she said she was a police officer from Jamaica. She's a lesbian, but she wasn't out and she was married with kids and everything. And she used to go to these underground lesbian parties. And she was at one of these parties and the police raided it and they recognized her and she started to get bullied. So she said initially she flew from Jamaica and went to Miami for a couple of weeks, hoping that things would die down and she could come back and everything would be okay. But life's never that simple. She came back and her husband had taken the kids and left home. Her, her car had been petrol bombed and there was graffiti all over her house. And she decided in that moment that she was going to kill herself. But she didn't want to do it in Jamaica. She wanted to find somewhere where nobody would know her. So she flew to London. And she, she was going down Oxford Street. She wanted to go out on a high. So she was walking down Oxford Street. And she came to this Evening Standard newspaper seller. And on the poster was this big black face. With a sign saying black, gay and a cop. And she stopped. She just froze. Uh, bought the newspaper, read the article, went to a phone, dialed 999 and said, I need to speak to that officer. And she sat there telling me this whole story and she says, I thought I came here to die. But seeing that article and meeting you has shown me that I can live. And she's now a surgeon, uh, a doctor, a medical surgeon, I think, in New York. What an incredible story. I've got loads of those. Loads of those. So when did your policing career come to an end? When did you draw a line under policing? Uh, 2018. Uh, that's because um, I'd set up a business in 2011 doing diversity training. And things had got, I started to take off. Uh, and I got to a point where I was 55 um i would get my pension but it was like if i don't give this a go will i regret it yeah and i was you know getting work in poland and vienna and you know in uh, france and germany so i was getting work all over europe lithuania uh, and i was like i need to jump on this bandwagon as it's going i need to jump on it and see where it takes me um, so that's when I finished my career in 2018. And I remember one of my colleagues said, you'll have about two years shelf life and then nobody, you know, nobody will be interested anymore. And here I am almost five years on. Next month, I'm going to be on stage with Nicholas Sturgeon. Um, yeah, I'm, sorry, I'm still going. 
Well, quite frankly, diversity training is as as as, as important today as it was three or four years ago. If anything, mm. I'd go as far to say it is probably more important today than it you know than it probably was yeah. three years ago. I th- well, if not as important, it's not something that I believe has an expiry date on it because you know the one thing that I think we could probably both agree on that police policing has at times throughout its history failed both the communities that it's policed and the people within its workforces in terms of recognizing Mm. diversity and I think we would also both agree that policing has come on a long way since its first establishment and and and, but people like yourselves has, has has have gone through these quite incredible what I would describe as quite traumatic experiences um, which have caused change to occur to ensure that the people that come behind you are recognised and can achieve some amazing things in British policing. But what I wanted to reflect on more importantly is there is still an awful lot more to do and you're still very Mm. active in the diversity training within policing. Mm. Oh, very much so. I look at it and I think this is why people get angry or or, for me. The way I see it is that when the police do a good job, you know, a fantastic investigation, they find that high publicity case, whatever it is, and it's a really, really good job. You look at it and you think, I think people look at it and say, you can do good things. So when you don't achieve that, and you do the stuff like, you know, the stuff that we've got going on with the misogyny and the homophobia and the rape. That annoys people because it's like, you've shown us that you can do good work. Why aren't you doing that good work consistently? It's not that, you know, it's not that people are saying, you know, we want you to raise you to a higher standard. You've proved that you can work at a higher standard. You know, there's loads of cases and examples of where we've reached that standard. But we're not consistent with it. Do we become complacent, do you think? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the thing is, uh, you know, if people don't like Marks and Spencers, they can go to John Lewis. There isn't a competition with the police. You know, people say, well, the police is like any other organisation. I said, no, there is no other organisation in society that has a bigger spotlight on it than the police. Every news article you put, every news uh, uh, bulletin that you hear, there will be an article about the police. Look how many cop shows there are out there. It's big business. So people have, we're in a high visibility role. High visibility. And with that high visibility comes a level of expectation. And it's, this isn't solely focused on British policing. You've had exposure and experience to police services and departments right across mm. Europe. How have you found their attitudes and challenges towards diversity? I'm sure you must have come across some rather okay. interesting... It varies, yeah. Yeah, very conversations. Very, very. very. <laughs> I know where you're going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You tell yeah. us, G. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, I, that, that's one of the things. I mean, yes, we've got a long way to go in the UK. Um, but one of the things, and I don't think we fully appreciate this as much in the UK, right, is we make the time to have the conversations. 
we make the time to have to deliver the workshops but I don't think we fully value what that means because I've gone to countries where this is not even on the agenda uh, for example I mean a good I did some work in Bulgaria a good few years ago and I'd done this presentation and I remember sitting down and I'm um, packing up my laptop and suddenly this shadow looms over me and it was this huge big Bulgarian cop and he says to me wonderful presentation and I'm like thank you and I'm sort of packing my egg and he says I would like to give you feedback and I'm sort of like okay and he goes I think that should have been done by a white man and I remember sitting there and you suddenly stop and I think as Kevin sent you, this is a wind-up, right? But I didn't, you know, my trainer head kicks in and I turn around and said, why would you say that? And he goes, because you people are victims, you're not meant to speak. And I'm like, wow, that's the place. And I remember coming back and speaking to the agency that sent me out there and I told them this. And they said, oh, sorry, we won't send you there again. I said, no, you've got to. I said, that's where the work is. Um, I remember going to, you know, I did work in Poland and I remember being with the guy who was my driver taking me around and we're driving along and he says to me, um, do you, do you know any Muslims? I'm like, yeah, why? Because, because I've never met a real terrorist before. And you sit there and you think, I don't even know where to begin with that. And, and you know, and, and and I think that that's that's what gives me when I do the work in the UK. That's what gives me my passion because I'm sitting there thinking, do you realise how lucky you are with some of this stuff? You know, there's a lot of people that look at it like it's a chore or it's a tick box, and, and actually, no, this is real. And and you've got a gift that you don't actually appreciate. Do we communicate in British policing the good work that we do in this space enough? I don't, I think we, we communicate it, but we still see it as something that's a bolt on. Yeah. We don't see it as, it's not always seen as core policing. I mean, for example, I go to forces and I say to them, you know, when was the last time you did any diversity training? And people say 20 years ago, 25 years ago, something like that. And I sit down and say, look how much the world has changed in those 25 years. And you're going out into a community or into a society that's changed, yet you haven't been given the awareness or understanding about that changes, those changes. I think things like diversity training should be up there with officer safety training. And something that's delivered every year. A refresher should be done every year. Yeah. So the question I have for you, if I may, is yeah. that London is now one of the most diverse cities in the world. And, you know, we have an increasing number of different cultures. You know, London is a melting mm. point of rich environments of different people from mm. different backgrounds. How do we make sure that we don't set up our constables 
to fail in terms of them going into environments or into communities where they don't understand the people that they're looking after or they're servicing or they're, you know, or they're having to meet the needs and expectations. How do we educate them on this really important stuff? What have we, what have we got to do? It's, it's, it's almost like uneducating, right? You know, you will never understand the diversity of London, for example, as you mentioned London, right? It is too fast, it's too varied. Whether that's in terms of ethnicity, uh, nationality, sexual orientation, whatever. It is so varied, right? And I hate the word understand because the pressure is we need to make you understand. And actually, you can't. I think the successful place is to be you need to teach people that they don't understand. That they don't know. Because when you are actually comfortable with not knowing, you stop being judgmental. And I don't mean that not knowing from a place of ignorance. I mean not knowing from a place of awareness. It's not what we know that causes us problems. It's what we think we know. It's what we assume. But if you go into these places, if you teach officers to be curious, it's the curiosity that creates the, you know, you go to a community, I've never dealt with this before, can you help me understand? You will get a lot more respect. Um, so it's, we, we need to teach people to know that they don't know. Can we talk about, oh, sitting over your right shoulder there is an incredible award that you won almost 12 months to the day, mm -hmm. along with your director, um, for, the, for, the, for the short film that came out called The Black yeah. Cop, which was yeah. a, a depiction on your policing career and your life. And it's an incredible um, piece of videography. And anybody listening to this podcast needs to put down their work material for 35 minutes to sit and watch is what a remarkable uh, representation of your life it, it blew me away in fact i've watched it three times once in bed Thank with you. my wife sitting beside me so that we could try to understand and put ourselves in your position and understood you know if if i'd been there if it'd been me how would have i acted because i think it's important that we understand those challenges you know and put ourselves in the mm. positions so i found it incredibly groundbreaking so i wanted to say congratulations on what an incredible uh, piece of material it was it was really quite phenomenal and, and quite moving i joined because i wanted to be white and i saw that badge as a symbol of i'm one of you i'm not one of them i ignored some of the racism I perpetrated some of it. I had to hurt people to get here. There were scenarios and people and experiences that I couldn't go back and apologize to. So how do I reconcile that within myself? How do I, how do I forgive myself? What was Thank it you. like what was it like to make it and to relive some of those experiences? Well, I mean, my story is the, is the ground, um, sorry, is the foundation of the work I do. 
So telling my story, I've got to a point where I can tell the story now openly and freely. Um, I've owned my story, if that makes sense. Uh, and I and I tell a story from a place of empowerment. And, and for me, making the film, um, I was involved in the beginning of the film, but I wasn't involved in the actual filming. And one of the funny things is when I first saw the first draft of the film, I was actually pretty annoyed, right? Um, because I was like, oh, you know, you missed out this bit and that just out. And other than that, I could see all the parts that weren't right. Okay. And then I remember the first time I watched it with an audience and it was in Manchester. We did a screening up at the film school in Manchester and I sat at the back and as the audience, but you could feel this emotion in the room. And I was like, ah, yeah, I was looking at it because I could see what was missing, but the audience don't know what's missing. They just see the film for the film as, as it is. And it's, I've had some phenomenal emails, messages, conversations, and, and not just from black officers or gay officers, from people across the board, not even just police officers, you know, from all sorts of backgrounds. Um, and, and people have said that it's given them a voice. You know, it's, it's given them permission to talk about it. I mean, I was, I was at an event on Sun Saturday in Coventry, and there was a woman who stood up there and just burst into tears and said, I need to tell you something. And I said, what's that? She goes, because I was fostered as a child. And she said, she's, she's adopted a young boy who she's finding very challenging. Okay. And she said, watching that film and talking to me has given her hope for the future. Right. And, it's, and I thought that that's, that's, to me, that's what it's about. It's about... What can I do, say, or give you that will help you be a better you? I don't want people to be like me. I want you to be like you. I want you to be authentically you. Um, whether you're a cop or a dustbinman dust or, or, you know, or a postie, whatever it is, be you. Because being you is magical. When you can own the space that you're in and, and you don't have to be what you think people want you to be. It's an amazing place to be. Take us through the moment that you received uh, a bit of a glimpse of a notification that this incredible uh, picture <laughs> which you had made um, could possibly be up for an award which was slowly creeping up to be somewhat of a reality talk us through that moment in your life oh it must have my been a gosh. Bit surreal yeah i mean it was released the film came out i think in about the october or november of the year before uh or maybe just after and i remember sort of like getting a phone call the first phone call i got was oh it's been uh long listed for a bafta and I was like, hey, I'm happy with that. Hey, just nice. Uh, good, yeah. And then I get the second phone call. Um, it's been shortlisted. And it's like, okay. Okay, yeah. Then um, 
couple of weeks before the BAFTAs, I get a phone call. And I remember I was in a car park of a supermarket. And I'm sitting in the car and I get a phone call. And he goes, we've been nominated. And I just burst into tears. I sat in the car and I was just, I just started crying. I was just sitting there and, you know, looking around thinking. And the thing is, I wanted people to see me crying. It wasn't that, oh my God, I'm crying, I don't want to. I just wanted, it was joy. It was just, I don't know what it was. It was just something that was just like, wow, I can't believe this is happening. And then to turn up there on the day, I remember turning up and there was another director for another film that was in the same category. And he comes over and he goes, oh, you're the black cop. I said, yeah. And he goes, yeah, I saw that film last night. I said, what do you think? And he goes, oh, we've got no chance. <laughs> but I'm I'm sitting there with this say, "Hey, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> if we win, I'll give it to you. <laughs> we'll cut it in half." Yeah. <laughs> and then people kept telling me, "You're going to win. You're going to win." And I'm like, "I don't want to hear this. I really don't want to hear this." And I remember we were sitting down there, and they said, "And the winner is the black cop." And I remember Cherish and I just sat there. And for a few seconds, we just stared at each other. There was this, like, disbelief. And then somebody said, you need to get up on stage. Winners of Best British Short Film. It's not in an easy 2002, thing. I was standing on this train station wanting to commit suicide. Mm -hmm. Standing up there today, I know why I didn't. Yeah. Um, it's, it's surreal. Mm. It, this is this is totally sorry, guys. <laughs> and we got up on that stage, and I remember looking around that room, uh, looking around the Albert Hall, thinking, "This is surreal." It's an incredible place to get it too. It's such a yeah. phenomenal place to get to be anyway. It's just incredible in there. And then just sort of like, it took my. My view of my, my, my awareness, my level of awareness. Let's say I looked at the world like that, right? In that one night, it just went bang. It just said anything's possible. That's what it did. It just blew everything out of the water. It just said anything. And it was um, validation of what I do. You know, this was like... Yeah, this is making a difference. This is making a difference. Was there a moment of self-reflection where, you know, maybe a day or two later, you sat there thinking, you know, never in a million years would I have thought, you know, 20, 30 years ago, a young man who was slightly angry with the world, angry with police, fast forward 20, 30 years, and here I am receiving an <laughs> award for an incredible piece of you know material that's been produced was there a, was there a time of reflection of everything you'd gone through to get to that point i'm getting emotional from that question and the reason why i'm getting emotional is because i've had that moment i've been privileged to have that feeling several times in my life for different things uh, if i can go back a little bit Sure, right. please do. When I was when I was coming out, one of my my coming out song, as I call it, 
was Something Inside So Strong by Labby Sifri. Oh, that's a great song. Yeah, and I played that over and over again. It just, every time I played it, it energised me. Anyway, shortly after doing the speech in London, I was um, asked to attend the, the first National Black Gay Men's Conference. And I turned up at this venue, and there was a poster of me on the stage. And I sat down at the speaker's table, and I turned to my right, and sitting on my right is Labby Sifri. And I remember... <laughs> and then I said to him, what are you doing here? And he says, I'm here to introduce the keynote speaker. And I'm like, oh, wow, he must be so lucky. What a privilege. And he gets up on that stage and he does a poem and he introduces the keynote speaker. Everybody in the room stands up and there's this standing ovation. And I'm there thinking, where is this guy? And there's that moment when I suddenly realize, oh, my gosh, it's me. I've just been introduced by Labby Sifri. And I remember standing behind the lectern, looking around that room, thinking 25 or 30 years before, I was on the streets of Lagos living under a bridge. And here I am in this room having a stand. So that was the time I, that was the first time I can really remember having that feeling. The second time I remember having it was meeting Desmond Tutu. And spending time talking with Desmond Tutu. I spent time in a hotel with Desmond Tutu. And that was very surreal. You sort of think life doesn't get better than this. I say one of the most incredible men to ever walk this planet. Exactly. Then I met James Earl Jones. That was awesome. Right? Right. So all of those moments, I kept thinking, that's surreal. This is surreal. This is, wow. And when that happened on that day, I've, I've had, I'm still having that moment a year on. I, I, show, I show my acceptance speech in presentations. And every time I show it, I burst into tears. I still can't believe, I know it happened, but it still feels so, so surreal. surreal. Yeah. yeah, very, very surreal. It still feels like a dream. One of the things that made it even more powerful, now we didn't cover this in this conversation, but um, there was a guy who paid for me to come from Nigeria back to London. He bought my ticket, right? Didn't have to, he was a total stranger. Uh, but, you know, over the years, we've kept in touch. And the night before the Oscars, I was in a hotel in London. And he rang me up and we had a really emotional phone call. Because he knew me when I had nothing. And suddenly to be in this place where I'm going to be on that stage, or potentially winning this thing, it was just... His pride in me made it really worthwhile. Richard, Richard, he changed my life. Yeah. Uh, now I've got a book deal coming up. Um, and I'm a lucky man. And one of the things I think that's validated me is that when I look back, I have so many reasons 
to be bitter, to be angry, to be twisted, to hate the world. And I choose not to. I choose not to. The first person I've had to learn to forgive is myself. And if I can forgive myself, why can't I forgive anybody else? I want to kind of close out with your thoughts on British policing today. You know, we, we've talked about how far it has come on. You know, there's always more to do. And I think complacency is the biggest challenge that we face mm. in terms of making sure that we don't go backwards. You know, we talk about... Um, female representation in policing you know if you look at the over 250 um senior executive females that are in that are, that are in british policing we've made tremendous ground in in improving inequality but out of those 250 49 percent of those are female but actually there's probably only a very small handful of those females that are from an ethnic background. So there's more that we need to do in ensuring that we don't become complacent and that representation is across the board because there are some incredibly talented police officers from ethnic backgrounds whose mm. talent needs to be nurtured, they need to be supported, and they need to be given the opportunities, which is a big thing, and I think it's something that I'm keen to see in the future. But I wanted to understand from your perspective... We talk about having courageous conversations and you and I have spoken about this um, off air about having courageous conversations and making sure that we can improve and challenge ourselves and have difficult conversations. Is that what you would like to see in the future for policing to continually try and challenge itself and get better? Yeah, and I think we've got the wrong end of the stick in policing when it comes to dealing with these issues, right? Um, misogyny is not a woman's problem. It's a men's problem. Racism is not a black person's problem. It's white people problem. Homophobia is not a gay problem. It's a straight problem. And I think that what we tend to do is we look at the wrong. Let's look at what we can do for that group. And actually that group is not the problem. You know, it's what can we do for white men? How can we, how can we, you know, how can we help people to understand what it means to be in a majority? Right? The pressure is about the majority pressurizing the minority. Right? And no matter how much, it's almost like the analogy I use is there's no point in putting clean fish into a dirty pond because it doesn't clean the fish. It doesn't clean the water, it dirties the fish. If that makes sense. Right? right. What we need to do is that, you know, I, I, I would like to see, and I, people are probably going to shoot me down in flames in this one. We need to do courses to help straight white men understand what it means to be a straight white man. Because at the moment, if you've got an organization where 70% of your organization is straight white, if they're not happy, or if they don't understand what's going on, then no matter what you do for that 10%, it's never going to be successful because you haven't brought the majority with you. I don't need to be educated 
you know, because a lot of this time when I look at a lot of these programs, it's almost like we need to help that group. We need to help you support you. But actually, no, you're the ones that need the help. I don't need the help. I need you to understand or value the world I what I bring. The reason why we're in this situation is because you don't understand what I bring. And you think I need to help to understand that. And I don't. I know why I'm here. No, that's an incredibly important point. And um, one that I think actually I had never thought about in that way because it is always about the groups that people perceive you need to understand yeah. better. But it's not understanding them better. As you quite rightly point out, they already know who they are and, and what they believe in. And it's the individuals, you know, it's... um. Yeah, it's a, it's a very important point you make there. Yeah, Nobody's ever asked the question, what does it mean to be white? It's always, I need to understand about racism from black people. I need to understand sexism from women. I need to understand homophobia from the gay community. You would never go to a woman who's been raped and say, I need to understand about rape from you. What you're actually doing is reinforcing that person's marginalization. What's the future hold for you, G? What's 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 in your current plan in the next couple of years? Outside of policing, you've got an exciting book deal coming up. I've got a book deal coming up. So there's obviously going to be a lot yeah. more stories and a lot more insight into your life i see yeah. more detail than probably what is in the, the the short film which was done so when does that all come out how can yeah. we how can we start to look out for that well the, the the book will hopefully we're aiming for a launch date for the book in 2025 um what what one of the things i'm keen for the book not to be is about blame shame or guilt or anything i want it to be a book that people can read I feel inspired and empowered by. Um, so that, that's the focus of that. Outside of that, um, I've got a couple of uh, media projects in the pipeline, um, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, and I turned 60 this year. So I'm looking forward to celebrating that. I would have picked you for about 45 and Thank you. <laughs> you charming. <Yeah. laughs> there you go, you see. Yeah. No, and that's the, that seems very surreal as well. Uh, uh, I still think I'm going to be 60? Wow. Um, and then I suppose if, if things go according to plan, I'd like to work at least another four or five years. And then I want to just find a little village somewhere and have a little dog. And... Um, just be that guy who sits on the park bench and say, I used to be in the job, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Well, gee, it's been an hour and 25 minutes. And I think it's probably important at this point to be totally transparent with my listeners that this is the second time that you and I have spoken because I don't usually publish my bloopers, but the last episode we do. This is an incredibly important episode for me. Uh, I think it's one of the most important ones I'm going to have in this series because, you know, we talk about some difficult topics to be frank and we're having courageous conversations we're being 
open and frank and quite frankly it's challenged some of I spent a lot of my time working in indigenous communities in Australia and I thought I knew all the problems and I thought I understood indigenous people when really actually I didn't and I needed to stop and I needed to listen and I think that's a lot where we go wrong is we think we know what the problems are and we don't listen to people we've got to you know the skill of listening is an important one and um, as I say our last conversation I didn't record as as, as as good as I wanted to in terms of audio so this has been really really important for me to get this right because this is critically important the messaging that you and I want to get across today um, so on behalf of myself and my colleagues my, on the podcast I, I want to start by saying thank you very much for your service I want to say thank you very much indeed for breaking through glass ceilings and making the journey for the people that follow you a lot easier uh, and want to acknowledge some of the sacrifices uh, that you've made to get to where you've got to today and wish you you know many congratulations on some incredible successes and we like we say this isn't a blame game this is about learning it's about a journey um, it's about reflection um, and I think it's about being open honest and, and like I say there's there's no greater meaning than having these courageous conversations and being able to have them openly with each other and and, and be able to, to to challenge certain views and opinions so thank you ever so much for the for the candid conversation and for joining me again second time around and uh, I look forward to catching up with you in the future for a nice hot coffee likewise thank you Oliver protect and serve is a mash pumpkin production hosted by Oliver Lawrence research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley produced edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence (laughs) 